Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 195 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday night, March 2nd, 2021. I don't know where we've been, but I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's okay, Bobby, because Texas is reopened. Well, I'll tell you what's not been open is this show. How long has it been since we recorded an episode? Three weeks. Um, that was not by design, everybody. That was, we, we sort of got natural disaster along the way. We did. Um, so we'll we'll get to our show in a minute, but tell me a little bit, a little bit about how the Vladek family handled the snowpocalypse that took down Texas so thoroughly. Well, I mean, I you know, I, we live very close to you, obviously. We are on the same power grid. Um, I think we were a little more squeamish about staying around a house with no power um, than you guys were. You guys were, were better troopers. Um, we, had a, we had a gas line that powers our fireplace. That helps. So, so we don't. That, that made um, all the difference. So so we, like you, lost power around 2 o'clock Sunday morning, February, uh, or Monday morning, February, what, 15th? Yeah, so um, Sunday night into Monday morning. Yep. Um, I don't know if this is true for you guys, but the moment we lost power, we were woken up by the dulcet tones of our screaming five-year-old who was upset that her nightlight was off. I I couldn't hear your five-year-old quite, so fortunately, that was good. Um, Uh, And then we made the decision. I've got the uh, heavy sleeping variety of of teenagers. There you go. Uh, And then we made the decision pretty early on Monday to decamp to a hotel just because we figured – you know, we, we don't, um, I mean, we have a gas stove that we could use, but like no hot water. Yeah. You can't heat. Uh, yeah. You can't do it that way. We stayed, um, in front of the fireplace and we kind of did the little house in the prairie thing. Everybody piling in with as many sweaters and blankets and you name it. And we, we held out until the power came back Wednesday. I tell you that moment when the power snapped on Wednesday night, we went nuts. We went <laughs> crazy. And then it was like an hour later and the water went. And it was like, okay. Love them. So 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 we were never home while we had both power and water until I think it was what Friday or so. Yeah. Um and then the water, even on Friday, the water wasn't potable. Um, so that was lovely. That's why uh, that's why I spent Thursday morning uh using my snow shovel to fill empty container bins that usually hold like, you know, Christmas decorations with snow and then dumping said snow into the bathtubs. There you go. And I tried really hard to only collect the clean looking snow, but man, once it melted, you saw the reality. It was not yep. clean water. That not clean water. Terrifying. Um, but I will say all that notwithstanding, I mean, we came through pretty unscathed. I mean, we have plenty of friends who had significant damage to their houses, who had burst pipes, who had you know, tankless water heaters that broke because of the combination of a lack of power and the freezing temperatures. And so, you know, um, the builders of our house, I actually, we actually sent them a note to say thank you because wow. um, our, our house, our house done good. And one of the things that they did that I had never understood until, you know, two weeks ago is they put the water heater in the attic. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You have a tankless, but it's in your attic. That Yes. Um, ours is outdoors, but we ran the pipes internal to reach it. And that made the difference there. Everybody I know around here who has an, a true outside uh, water heater uh, lost it if, it if the pipes ran outside. And not only lost it, but like is is on like the longest waiting list in the history of the world to get a plumber to come fix it. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people still in Texas. There are places where there still isn't power. There's places where the water hasn't been restored because the pipe problems were so severe. And there are plenty so, of folks who just have burst pipes in their houses that are going to take months to fix. So it seems like a good time for the governor of our fair state to uh, um, get rid of the mask mandate for COVID and to say businesses can open 100%. This is going to be a really, uh, really wild time in the weeks ahead. I think my my sense of the contagion numbers is that they, they'd come down off the horrific peak, but we're starting to edge back up again here and in other places because, of course, the more transmissible variants are beginning to have their impact. Now, this is going to butt up against the the rapid spreading of vaccinations, which thankfully are starting to really accelerate. A, a great way to track that is the Washington Post vaccination page, which does a seven-day rolling average, and they track it over time. So you can get a strong sense of it. We're finally, especially with Johnson & Johnson now on the horizon, we're finally going to get somewhere with that. But this is this is not the right time, obviously, to take off the mask. Well, I mean, and it's worth, I mean, it's, it's worth stressing the data here. I mean, seven out of eight Texans have not yet received a single dose of the vaccine, even though the numbers are, are obviously getting better by the day. But um, David Gura, who's a great follow, who's a correspondent for NPR, among other things, um, had a great tweet earlier this afternoon that when Governor Abbott announced the statewide mask mandate, 
um, on July 2nd of last year, there were 7,434 new COVID cases in Texas and 44 deaths. Yesterday, there were 8,140 cases and 129 deaths. So I just, I mean, it's obviously politics and I even sort of kind of understand the politics, but give me a break, people. Yeah, I wish they would allow this to be determined locally from place to place. Yes, that would make, I mean, right. I, I don't doubt for a second that there are counties in Western Texas that, you know, have, have, seen a significant drop and are no longer sort of at, at, at risk. But that's not true here in Austin. Now, my understand, in, in fairness, my understanding is that they, part of the order is that where I think it's the hospitalization rate hits a certain percentage, 15%. The, county, the county becomes empowered to instate that on the local basis. So I don't mean to make it sound like there's no local element. I, I don't know if that's the right percentage. I but, doubt but with, that. But, but, with, but, with, but with incubation sure. periods being what they are, like by the time the hospital, hospitalization rate hits that trigger, it's too late. I mean, the reality is why not just give counties autonomy and let them figure it out for themselves? Yeah, I, I would like to see more of a local option. Um, and I think it's also that is actually the more conservative way to do it is to. Uh, Holy cow. Who knew? Local conditions. And anyway. Right, but no, no one's here to listen to us talk Texas politics. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? Oh, shoot. All right. Well, in that case, how about Syria, the airstrike, and the war powers notification and some of the fallout from that as a classic core thing we actually know something about? Yay. There's that. Um, We've got an update on the situation with Islamic State detainees who are in SDF custody and an answer to the question that I've raised often and again. What about the high value detainees who ended up in U.S. custody when the United States at least partially withdrew its support from the SDF under Trump. And it turns out there is an answer to that. And it's not what I thought it was. Um, so we'll get to that mystery solved. Thank you to Katie Bo Williams and her excellent uh, on the ground reporting in Iraq, getting to the bottom of this and actually clarifying a mistake I was making all along about that. Um, I want to take note of an interesting trend that's underway in the, uh, the array of prosecutions emerging out of both the January 6th insurrection proper and spinoff prosecutions having to do with the possibility of similar type things happening at other state capitals and counter-mobilizing, counter-calls to arm that also took place. There's, There's a common thread in a particular way that the feds are charging some of these that raises really interesting First Amendment true threats questions. And uh, I'm no expert on it, but it's going to be fun to just raise the issue. And perhaps some of you listeners are experts on this and can give some insight. Um, We can check in down at Guantanamo because we can't go a week without doing that. We can take note of what the Biden administration has and has not done with respect to the intelligence report on the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Steve, anything else? (sighs) Probably. (laughs) <laughs> um, not, been, I mean, if it's not clear folks we're not 100 percent back we are not 100 percent functional no yet. i mean i mean the problem so so the, the the most ignominious thing of all was on the sunday when we were finally back in the house and things started finally feeling like they were back to normal my glasses broke um <laughs> and my new glasses have not come yet so i've been without glasses now for nine days um, Interesting. um that's gotta be that's got to be a bit of a challenge. If I see no, your car on the road, I'm going to dive to the side. No, no, it's not a problem for driving. It's just been a huge problem for reading. So I've been like hyper magnifying everything on my computer, which is kind of funny. Like, it's awesome. Um, but you're, you're, but you're not just, trying to get Karen to read to you? No. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I, I really want Karen to read all of these old military justice cases about retirees to help me prep for next Tuesday. I know she would really like that. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, though. Um, um, Hopefully the new glasses are coming this week. So it would be nice if they came by Tuesday. Well, I'm leaving. I'm leaving for DC on a business trip on Monday, which is a weird thing to say because I haven't gone on one of those in a year. I can't wait to hear your report from the airport. But can I ask, uh, how did you break said glasses? So I should say these glasses are quite like this was a sign that it was time for me to get new glasses. Um, this this particular pair of glasses I think was about five years old, and um, one of the things that's happened over time is the the legs have become so loose. That when I lean over, Bobby, if my hair is remotely wet, right, they fall right off my face. <laughs> um, and I, I've gotten pretty sweaty sort of cleaning up the house and doing the things that one does when one is, you know, on the 11th straight day of watching their kids 24-7. Um, and I had a, a moment where I was just cleaning up while the girls were napping and I just leaned over and the glasses fell and they landed perfectly on the bridge. 
so that they snapped right along the bridge. Right like some into. kind of like like the kung fu point of weakness to snap yes. them in half. Yes, <laughs> that's impressive. I guess. And I uh, guess well, I mean, I, I, if, if I were more industrious and or willing to look foolish, I probably could have like tried to super glue the two halves together. Okay. This is like presenting all kinds of like homebrew opportunities. I, I know. know. Did you? Did we ever pass in the sh- the snow covered streets? Did you ever see what I was wearing for snow boots? Do you know I did not. So I had uh, some academy bought snow boots from like 10 years ago that I dug out of the box on the first night and uh, they seemed fine. And for the first couple of hours uh, walking around outside, they worked fine, but then the sole detached from one Uh-oh. and I, you know, I had to have it. So what does one do? One goes to the duct tape. So I got out the duct tape. Only here's the catch. I didn't have a proper duct tape. I had the, you know, the decorative kind that yeah. kids use to decorate things for school and stuff. Sure. So mine were like a sparkly mermaid scales. And what was, I, I fell to see the problem. Exactly. So I shamelessly wrapped, thoroughly wrapped the sole back onto my, my cheapo snow boots with uh, the tape. And then bit by bit, the, the other shoe gave way. I ended up having to use the rest of the tape to partially secure it. But then I had to pivot to the pink sparkle duct tape. And so by the time the end of the snowpocalypse came around, I was walking around the neighborhood. I mean, I was in our grocery store in one of those like 75 person lines. And I'm just loud and proud with my sparkly homebrew uh, duck boots, I guess. I think think sparkly rainbow snow boots is a good episode title. (laughs) That's so good. I'll write that down. Sparkly rainbow snow boots. So I had my my only win in in a week full of misery. My only actual win was my Whole Foods experience. Um, So Whole Foods had been closed all week. It finally opened up Friday. And it was set to open. I went to the mothership, you know, the North Lamar yep. store, mm-hmm. and and it was set to open at nine. And so I thought, okay, well, there's going to be a line, so let me get there at like eight forty, so I could, so oh. maybe I won't be too far back in the line. Well, they actually soft opened at eight thirty, oh, which means I... which means that by eight forty, the folks who had already been in line waiting for them to open had entered. And there was no line because folks who thought they were opening at nine had not yet arrived. So I walked right into Whole Foods. God, I'm jealous. I waited, I don't know, 40 minutes to get into a Randall's and then, you know, shopped around, got what I could. I mean, it was, it was total like, you know, zombie apocalypse. No, no, that was, that was the most, that was the most intense supermarket experience of my life. Like far more so than early in the pandemic when there was no toilet paper to be had. Right. There was just, there was something about that, well, because I think it was the water, right? Because like no one had water. And so the first thing that went were the pallets of water that Whole Foods had in the store. Good heavens. Well, there's an But here we are in, in a first in the second largest state in the in the in a first world country where, you know, apparently we don't actually winterize our energy infrastructure. Yeah, the winterization was was a central part of that. The lack thereof was a central part of it. You know, the thing is, um, you know, we could easily have blackouts again from heat overburdening overload of the system in the summer. Um, but this is not a show about the Texas Ener- energy grid. So we will spare you guys further complaints on our part. I feel like we've vented enough. Um, let's I could go. I, hey, I could go all night, buddy. I, I know it. I, know. <laughs> I don't, And on this one, I, this one, we're more, uh, I was gonna say, I feel like you wouldn't even disagree with most of my venting as opposed to usually. No, there's, there's no, there's no defending, uh, there's only describing, not justifying the failure to winterize because the same thing happened in 2011. Right, right. The, the once a century storm happened 10 years ago. Yeah, it totally did. And everyone said like, well, this is because we don't we don't winterize for obvious reasons that people with short term uh, determinants of behavior in positions to decide whether to try to, to spend this or to authorize the spending that's necessary for it. Decided not to because, hey, when's that going to happen again? Well, now you know. And that sucked. Can we please just winterize now? Meanwhile. Just one last observation before we turn back to the substance of our podcast. Um, So I don't remember which day it was the week after. It was like Wednesday when the high was 86. Um, And so in a period of six days. Oh, yeah. in In a period of six days, we went from record low high temperatures to record high high temperatures that's pretty impressive <laughs> it was that, no that that was very texas i loved it and we're, we're back to the normal weather this time of year which is you know part of what we're all in this for i was gonna yeah. say this like this is the perfect weather high 60s low 70s every day we've got like three weeks of this and then it starts sort of creeping up to the 80s oh it's, yeah this is this is prime time and you no know, bugs of course it's just it's nice 
Now, I'm going to say this clearly for the benefit of Jacob, uh, Jacob at Lawfare. Jacob, we're going to trans- transition now to what we actually are here to talk about. <laughs> Let's start with uh, the airstrike against the facilities on the border between Syria and Iraq associated with certain Iranian-backed, Iran-backed uh, militia groups and the war powers letter that the administration produced. Uh, Steve, maybe we should uh, do a quick narration. I've got the letter in front of me. We can kind of hit the highlights and then kind of say some commentary on the key legal positions, domestic and international, as they come out. How's that sound? Works for me. Okay, so this is the February 27th letter uh, to the Speaker and the President Pro Tem of the Senate, uh, as as is almost always the formulation, if not literally always the formulation, consistent with the War Powers Resolution, thus not as required by, but just consistent with. And in it, the president states that on February 25th, U.S. Armed Forces conducted a strike uh, against infrastructure in eastern Syria used by Iran-supported non-state militia groups. Uh, And then the next paragraph links those particular groups to recent attacks in the plural uh, including, but by implication not limited to, the uh, well-known February 15th attack that occurred in Erbil in northern Iraq, where one U.S. service member was uh, wounded, uh, four contractors from the United States wounded, one critically, and a Filipino citizen who was a contractor was killed. Uh, and then the key sentence, these groups were also engaged in ongoing planning for future such attacks. So next operative paragraph um, I directed this, uh, this action to protect and defend personnel and partners against these attacks and future such attacks. So kind of drawing the connection there to the idea that this is, this is not just, this is not retaliation. This is about prevention as well. Um, the next sentence, a reference to the United States always standing ready to take quote, necessary and proportionate action in self-defense, including when is here, um, The government of the state where the threat is located is unwilling or unable to prevent the use of its territory by non-state militia groups. So um, that's the setup. There's a lot of implications or uh, elements there that foreshadow what the legal position is going to be. The next paragraph actually states the legal foundations. So Biden says, I did this consistent with my responsibility to protect U.S. citizens, both at home and abroad, which as... uh, connoisseurs of the topic will understand is an indirect uh, reference to the general idea of protection of force protection and also citizen protection as an aspect of the president's article two national self-defense authorities. And then also he says separately and in furtherance of us national security and foreign policy interests, which is a more amorphous and contestable boundary concept. But he doesn't root any of this in any AUMF. He says it's pursuant to my constitutional authority. And then he describes the particular authorities he has in mind. The one to conduct U.S. foreign relations. Let's come back to that. And as commander-in-chief and chief executive. And then the next sentence is about international law. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, This is interesting. Um, This isn't how I would have written it. I would not have in any way try to suggest that the authority to conduct foreign relations includes the use of lethal force. I would have talked much more specifically about the use of lethal force as an aspect of national self-defense and protection of citizens and the armed forces abroad. And that may sound to to the non-lawyers or the non-con law folks, that may sound like quibbling over semantics, but this is all about semantics. All we have are the categories here. That's what we're talking about. Uh, the conduct of foreign relations is a thing and it's got a lot of well-settled content and it's got a lot of amorphous boundaries to it. But at least in my cosmology of executive functions and powers, the pursuit of foreign policy obviously relates to national self-defense and protection of citizen and armed forces activities, but it's not the same thing. And the latter are not a subset of included within the former. They just are overlapping spheres, perhaps, or related spheres to some extent. Um, now, he's obviously kind of just talking loosely to a certain extent with his then reference to commander-in-chief and chief executive, which I guess indirectly get you national self-defense. But I think, I think it's funny that in the money sentence, he doesn't actually say the thing that I think is most central and frankly, in, entirely defensible as a matter of how the Article Two authorities have been interpreted over time. 
Um, am I wildly off base there? Did you see it differently? No, I mean, which is an, it's interesting both in what it doesn't embrace and what it does embrace, right? That that by sort of not following the line of prior OLC analyses, um, it seems to be suggesting some both discomfort with those analyses and some novel argument that I have lots of problems with on its own. I mean, I, let me put it this way. I would love to see the OLC opinion behind this War Powers report. And 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 you and I can probably guess who wrote it. Well, I would suspect that when we eventually do see it, because I'm sure we will, because we do tend to see these, um, I suspect it will be entirely in line with a traditional national self-defense, um, a traditional protection of forces and U.S. persons abroad type of argument, and that it won't try to assert any sort of highly contestable general authority to use armed forces or to use lethal military force as right, a means of exactly exactly yeah, yeah, no of course yeah. the, 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 my, my question is is there a discussion in the olc opinion of the statutes of either the 2001 or 2002 aumf which are noticeably lacking here yeah so turning away from this sort of intramural article 2 dispute about which head of article 2 authority should have been cited here and again, I don't think they're not claiming that. I just think they've it's, it's conspicuous that they didn't lead with that. It's weird they yes, didn't lead with I that. Agree. And it's potentially problematic to cite the much more nebulous foreign relations concept. But the thing most people noticed right away, and, uh, and Scott Anderson had some great comments on this, like, oh, look, they, not surprising, I think. They didn't cite the certainly not the 01 or the 02 Iraq-specific AUMF. And I think that's in keeping with what I would have expected from the Biden administration, which um, is going to have a lot of people with a voice in this type of uh, shaping of legal policy and statements who were critical of the Trump administration's attempt to set up the O2 AMF as broadly as possible in a way that was widely perceived by concerned outsiders, shall we say, I think including both of us as potentially stretching the O2 AMF in a way that would point towards a general authority to try to do regime change or something that could lead to that in Iran. And I didn't think they, I don't think they wanted to touch that with a 10 foot pole here. And there was no need to, I actually think it's uh, rather admirable. They resisted what surely was the temptation to some people that surely was advanced by some to say, Hey, do belt and suspenders. Yeah, sure. Cite article two. And then, and then cite just in case they help. O2 and maybe even the O1 AUMF. So some pretty interesting self-constraint. The the Trump administration would not have foregone citing the O2 AUMF in particular. So not your father, it's not your father's uh, uh, OLC. Right. Now, having said that, so it's a national self-defense scenario based on a claim of this group who we hit here was responsible for this prior attack and possibly others, and we believe more was coming. Um, Setting aside that, you know, obviously you and I aren't in, in a position to judge what information they've got to back those claims up, but assuming those are uh, within general bounds of accuracy, this to me presents as a, a very standard domestic law Article 2 type of claim. I don't find this out of the ordinary for past U.S. practice, past executive branch interpretations. Uh, anything, anything throwing you off about it in that respect? I mean, I just, I, I've said this before, and I don't want to be a broken record. Like every subsequent iteration of the notion that there's any standalone Article II power to engage in military force in this context just further embeds the principle in a way that I think is increasingly harmful um, and further erodes what I think is is both the correct original understanding of the war powers and the more analytically defensible understanding of the separation of war powers as just eviscerating Congress's role. And I think, I mean, I was I was fascinated by the reaction on Capitol Hill to the strike where the loudest supporters were Republicans and the loudest critics were Democrats. Like, hey, look, <laughs> some people are actually consistent. It uh, It is an old uh, saw for us that we see this one differently. So I, I think it's I know, but, but have, you seen, this could be a have you seen Cy Prakash's new article? I have not read it yet, no. So in the uh, in this month's issue of the how could you not have already read the March issue of the Virginia Law Review, Bobby? Come on, exactly. it's um, on the list. So in this month's issue of the Virginia Law Review, there's an article by Sai Prakash um, and by uh, a student of his, or at least a recent student, a graduate of his, William Hall, 
um, on the Constitution's first declared war, the Northwestern Confederacy War of 1790 to 1795. Um, if you're scoring at home, it's 107 Virginia Law Review 119. Um, and what Sy and, and, and William Hall basically document over the course of 69 pages is the claim that OLC has made increasingly stridently that even the Washington administration resorted to unilateral presidential war making by citing to um, you know this very example, the Northwestern Confederacy conflict, um, is actually belied if you buy by the actual history of that conflict and by what Congress actually did during that conflict, and that actually it was a it was a congressional war through and through, um, and so insofar as those precedents are increasingly forming the basis for claims about Article 2, um, we ought to understand them correctly. I will read that with great interest. It sounds awesome and interesting. I got to say, I've never thought that precedent, practical precedent from the Washington administration has played any significant role in, in the modern understanding the OLC of has. national self-defense. I, I, even, even my sense of the OLC memos hasn't suggested to me that that particular instance uh, plays any significant role, but I will reserve judgment ultimately until I've read what they have to say. And uh, right. but, but I will say, I mean, if for so so Bobby, I mean, that's that is an entirely defensible position. I, I do think that for those of us who spend time debating the virtues and vices of originalism as a modality of constitutional interpretation, I have always been struck by the extent to which many of those who purport to be avowed and devout originalists have something of a black hole when it comes to the war powers. It's a well-recognized uh, flip where you tend to find uh, more conservative-leaning national security types who are less likely to uh, emphasize original ex- originalist examples in the foreign relations law context broadly understood than you would in parallel domestic spheres. That's, that's definitely a phenomenon people it's have. It's almost like the Constitution evolves. Uh, it is it is definitely the case that you find people identified as conservatives who are in the national security sphere who don't present as originalist in some sort of that's got to always be the determining factor. And then you have other people who are not foreign relations, national security types who have a, a different view of that. But I, I agree that it, it tends not to be a place where you find the conservatives making it an originalism over other methods approach and much more willingness to accept uh, both practical precedent, especially over time, and for some, but definitely not all. For some, it's really practical precedent, and this is how it's just been for a long time. For others, it's functionalism, what makes sense in the current circumstances, which is a position that's that's anathema to many a domestic-focused conservative, definitely. Uh, but let me, let me just say uh, um, now, in case it wasn't clear already, I am a huge fan of Sai Prakash and his work, and I don't always agree with it, but I always learn from it. Definitely. Um, let's, let's turn attention now. So that's all just the domestic framework. Uh, there's been a ton of great online chatter, especially on Twitter, uh, amongst the, the international law crowd assessing the one line that specifically engages international law quote, the United States took this action pursuant to the United States inherent right of self-defense as reflected in article 51 of the United, United Nations charter. Um, combined with the earlier reference I quoted a moment ago, where uh, the statement asserts that Syria is unwilling or unable to prevent the use of its territory by non-state militia groups responsible for such attacks. Um, This presents as a a classic, both parties of the post 9-11 era have, have advanced very consistently the same position that Insofar as the international law question is the Article 2.4 sovereignty-based rights of Syria, the response is some version, not always clearly theorized, but nonetheless some version of the unwilling, unable test. Um, And I don't think there's any question that if you accept that that test is a legitimate part of the analysis, Syria, indeed, the government of the Assad regime does not have the ability, it may may have the wish, but it does not have the ability to do something about what's going on here. And I don't think there's any reason to think they have a wish to do something about what's going on at that particular border crossing, since this is ultimately an Iran-sponsored activity, and they are in bed with the uh, the Iranian regime, at least to the extent of not being prepared at all to use force or otherwise take on the responsibility it has as a sovereign to try to prevent their ter- ter- territory from being used as the basis from uh, launching uses of force into another state. 
there are such uses of force. We could debate whether the intelligence really supports the attribution elements here, but none of us are in a position to really uh, weigh in on that. So I'll just accept it for the sake of this argument. And then the question becomes, is there is there any other reason to think this is wrong? And so one of the, one of the issues that's been put on the table is um, if the prior attack had long since concluded on February 15th, and if there's no claim by the United States that whatever attack may come next was in any literal sense imminent, then is this a situation that presents an Article 51 problem in the sense that it, it amounts to a claim of, of way in advance, not actually imminent, preemptive self-defense? Um, this is a this is a thing we've talked about before, including with specific reference to the Soleimani strike. My position is that you can't look at these things in strict isolation. You have to take in the course of conduct between the parties involved. The statement only references the February 15th attack. And, and if we limit it to that, then we don't have much of a course of conduct. But I, I'm not sure that's actually how the U.S. government's looking at this. I, my strong suspicion is that the way they're looking at this is there is a long sequence of attacks and foiled attacks and intelligence about upcoming attacks that make it far more plausible to characterize this as an ongoing series, not a one thing happened one time and maybe something will happen again, but rather that there's been a whole series of things that are going to continue happening and that the intervention is not as simple as, and indeed, maybe not properly conceptualized at all as preemption of the future attack, but rather an intervention in an ongoing uh, sequence. So uh, this is probably another area that we know from past experience you and I don't agree about. But (laughs) I don't see this as some sort of, hey, we've decided to bomb these people because one day they might bomb us. I don't see it as that sort of fact pattern at all. I will, I mean, rather than rehabbing the same fight we've had five times, I will just say, you know, that's an awfully generous reading of international law. Fair enough. Uh, Isn't it nice to be disagreeing again, by the way, and to be talking about things that matter where reasonable people can disagree? Now, of course, many listeners are probably thinking like either or perhaps both of us are not reasonable people disagreeing right now, but it feels that way to us. All right, let's leave that there and uh, turn our attention to a quick, vaguely related or partially related topic. Uh, For a long time on this show, going back to the moment when the Trump administration uh, shockingly and precipitously withdrew withdrew U.S. forces from a variety of areas within Syria where we were what stood between SDF allies and proxies, we were working with and training and supporting and fighting alongside against the Islamic State and uh, Turkey and the regime and, and the Russians and, you know, Wagner Group and Russian contractors. Uh, and in the, in the midst of that very ugly moment, there was a ton of reporting about how it appeared that some of the SDF detention facilities, including at least one, I think two, holding high value Islamic State detainees, were not sustainable and that the United States swept in and it was reported at the time, the United States swept in and had to take custody of a, of a relatively small number of the most valuable ones and get them out of there. And then ever since you and I periodically have checked in with the question of, you know, what's the deal with the guys that we took into custody? Is there not some sort of ongoing military detention scenario we're administering in northern Iraq, and I had speculated that maybe the, maybe we're not hearing about it because maybe the Iraqis um, or maybe the the Kurds in northern Iraq were basically formally taking that over, and we were just sort of supporting it logistically, but dodging formal legal responsibility. Um, Katie Bell Williams was on a trip on the ground over there recently, and uh, she, in the course of that, was doing some amazing reporting about what's happening with others whom the SDF forces are still holding, including some 2,000 plus foreign fighters from the Islamic State, who the United States and and a lot of these are European citizens, and there's been an ongoing battle about would Europe take back, please, any of these people and deal with them, which largely they will not. Uh, And then she let me know in the midst of all this that she'd been chasing this down. And in fact, there have been reporting, it might have been from Charlie Savage, there have been reporting that I just missed, uh, indicating that actually that whole thing was a bit of confusion 
And in the end, in the final moments of the potential transfer, we ended up not taking custody of those guys. The SDF managed it. And so uh, apparently that whole thing has been a wild goose chase. And I'm sorry to listeners who have been following it along with me for perpetuating what turns out to have been mistaken. Um, so anyways, we don't have those guys and we haven't had them. Now, I'm, I'm a little confused still about how that relates to the, the Beatles, which we've talked about, the so-called Beatles. I hate using that name for those guys, but the former British citizens. Maybe that's maybe those two guys were the, the two we had in any event. Um, but where are they? I, I, honestly, right now, I'm too tired to even recall what the status was. I believe we – didn't we drop – we've got indictments now. We're waiting for them to be – but I thought, but but I don't think they've been. Have they appeared? Repatriated yet? Have they not been? We've got them for sure. I know this right. because we were waiting on the British courts to decide whether or not it would be permissible for them to share information with us. And they did, and they did, and so uh, that paved the way to not do what Secretary Pompeo said we otherwise were going to do, which is we, not SDF, we were going to turn them over to Iraqi authorities, where it'd be much worse for them. So. That's violating the national law six ways from Sunday. Who cares? So, so we at least got these, got those guys. Um, Of course, that does raise a question: like, okay, well, wait a minute. If we did take those guys, is that it? So maybe there's still a little bit of uh, pinning down on that one. I'd like to hear more about that. I mean, suffice it to say, I, I think you and I agree that there are more than zero ISIS detainees in U.S. custody right now, probably outside the United States somewhere. The question is whether it's much. The question is whether it's more than two. Yeah, there's there's the Beatles, and then hmm. Now, and while, while we're on the topic of, of military detention, let's swing down south to Guantanamo. Must we? Uh, it's been a couple of weeks, Steve. Have we had any further delays of the trial schedule? I mean, nothing's happened. Uh, anything else happening there worth noting? Uh, there was. Um, oh gosh, there actually was an interesting ruling. Um, so in the Majid Khan case, right, Khan has actually, you know, Khan, we're, we're at the sentencing stage of the Majid Khan case. I hope I get this right. I'm sure folks will tell me if I don't. Um, the judge who had been presiding previously had held that um, evidence about Khan's torture and mistreatment was admissible for purposes of potential sentence mitigation. And then there was a new judge and the government filed a motion for reconsideration. And apparently the new judge has reaffirmed the earlier ruling. So if and when we actually get to the sentencing of Khan, apparently the sort of bad things that happened to him can be considered by the relevant fact finders. I have to assume that somewhere within the larger uh, tentacles of the Biden administration, somebody somewhere is working the question of what are the options? Should we, can we put a stop to the military commission process in favor of something else? What are the pros and cons? We'll see. Real quick I, update on I mean, they can't get anything through Congress. Like, I mean, you know. No, there's the, definitely, they're not like, likely to get something cooperatively through Congress. But an NDAA is special. If you can get it into the NDAA, well, I mean, are you, let me ask you this. Do you think it's not likely that in the upcoming NDA, which is the only one they for sure are going to have go through while they've got the current balance of power in Congress, uh, do you think they would have a, a, a one-vote Senate defection or multiple-vote defection if there was a, you know, some something that could be characterized as paving the way for allowing some Gitmo detainees to be brought into the United States for further prosecution? Maybe I mean, in a military court, but isn't the NDAA subject to filibuster? I, but will the filibuster still be around then? Who knows? I mean, Manchin, Manchin has said. I mean, he's not going to. You know, part of why nothing's happening in Congress is because. Mansion and cinema are willing to, you know, keep the filibuster and and allow the and allow that to to be the wedge against against most of these legislative proposals. So I guess it's, of all the things that the Biden administration wants to get through Congress, I just don't see a universe where the priority is going to be, you know, uh, um, getting rid of the detainee transfer restrictions. I mean, the only the the possibility that I guess it's possible that behind the scenes they could fight to keep the transfer restrictions out. Of the NDAA as opposed to any kind of affirmative legislation, but even right. that would require an enormous amount of capital. Yeah, I suspect they wouldn't want to spend that on that. I mean, the Obama administration did not want to spend capital on this at any point over eight years, and the, the Biden administration is not going to do it now, I suspect. Hey, going back to the Beatles, okay, I remember now. Those guys are here in the United States. They're in the civilian criminal prosecution system in federal court in uh, 
I guess in uh, was in Virginia, Northern Virginia? Virginia, Virginia. Yeah, I think. But they're definitely in the United States. They're no longer over there. Huh. So maybe. So the question is, were they the only ones? Did I totally miss that. Uh, no, we talked about it. It's just oh, okay. been, it's been a long. It's been a long year. I, mean, I, think, I think I think what may not be. I mean, the I know we said we weren't going to talk about Texas anymore. I think what folks may not be fully appreciating is that you know, for those of us who were affected directly by the crisis, the best case scenario was that we had a full week of you know, especially those of us who have who have school age children. The best case scenario was that we had you know six extra days of no school where we were basically full time parenting, and so. What that meant was like the work that also we had to do had to get done at night, which means that we didn't sleep. So we're all a little tired. We we're definitely a little tired. Um, okay, pivoting, over, pivoting to the domestic front. Um, yes. In the aftermath of the insurrection, of course, there are a lot of charges still emerging, still percolating. But there's a particular type of charge under 18 U.S. Code Section 875C that involves basically uh, communicating across interstate wires, in effect, communicating uh, threats to kill or kidnap, that sort of thing. And what's interesting is you're getting you're getting some cases, including both uh, pro-Trump, the election was stolen type, you know, insurrectionists, and at least one case in Florida about someone trying to call to arms people to go after those people. So it's it, you've got a couple of different types of fact patterns, but the commonality is you're getting some 875C charges where, at least according to the initial indictments, the the key predicate act is social media posting where the object of the threat to kill, kidnap is quite unspecified beyond the level of saying, so to take the Florida case as an example, this idea, the idea is, hey, on such and such a date, at Tallahassee, these people are going to storm the Capitol and they're going to be armed. So we've got to be there. We've got to be armed. And here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Take up your arms. Meet me there. Let's go. We're going to get these guys. Um, and and I think it raises a really interesting question that I have not done the legwork to study this, but I bet at least a few listeners have or know this area of the law. Is it the case that uh, the relatively amorphous nature of the threat is not traditionally thought to be a problem from a First Amendment perspective? Um, or is it the case instead that all the prosecutions that have withstood an actual uh, First Amendment challenge on sort of Brandenburg-style grounds where the government's saying, no, no, it's a true threat, um, have they in the past perhaps always involved specifically identified uh, anticipated victims? Um, I'm, I'm curious about that. I don't know the answer, but I think it's a really important question. It's also possible that some of this is charging leverage. Yeah, that they don't necessarily think that it's going to withstand full challenge, and that but they're they're taking this position at the grand jury stage. Uh, certainly possible, but the centrality of the charge in some of these cases. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, if somebody doesn't want to plead out, it might be because they think they have a good First Amendment argument and want to take their shot at that before they start settling down for a serious plea negotiation. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, in cases where it's 875C and nothing else, I would understand that. In cases where 875C is just one of a series of charges, you know, yeah. I don't know, I don't know how how realistic that is with from a leverage perspective. Yep. All right. Well, that's uh, you know, as I say, stay tuned. We're going to keep having developments there, and eventually, if some of those cases and charges stick, we'll eventually get to the motion to dismiss charges on First Amendment grounds stage, and what really interesting litigation to examine. Uh, Khashoggi, uh, the intelligence community has issued a report saying what everybody already knows is true, which is that MBS, uh, arranged and, and, and created a horrific, I mean, horror movie level murder and, and attempted cover up. Um, and the administration has been blasted for not doing more beyond the, there's the name and shame element, but where's the coercive punch afterwards? Um, any reactions or, or thoughts about the use or non-use of the various tools available to a president in a situation like this? I mean, I think not for the first time we're seeing just how complicated our relationship is with Saudi Arabia. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I personally would have liked to have seen a stronger response from the administration in light of what we now know and all had all long, all, all long suspected. The sort of, you know, in for a penny, but not a pound approach to sanctions in this context and to, and to any kind of 
you know, punitive consequence, I think is understandable, but unfortunate. Well, it's very interesting to compare and contrast it with what dropped. It's been signaled all day that this was coming, but a few hours ago, the Biden administration announced that it was sanctioning a variety of senior Russian government figures for attempting Navalny. to kill Alexei Navalny. Now, first and foremost, uh, kudos to the administration for sanctioning for that outrageousness. But it does re- present a very interesting issue. Like, is is there an inconsistency here? Well, of course, there is. Extent, yeah, and, and the leverage is entirely different in the relationship, and and so we're right. seeing. We- we, we we are much more adversary we are we are postured much more adversarial to Russia than we are to Saudi Arabia and indeed antagonizing Saudi Arabia would have downstream effects that sort of continuing this already fairly antagonistic relationship with Putin probably won't. I think that's that's the size of it. I mean, this isn't something that requires some clever analysis. Um, no, it's just I mean it's it's. It is a big part, Bobby, of why I am a fan of civil remedies, because there are contexts in which the government itself is going to have all kinds of incentives to not pursue the remedies that are available to it, whether in court or otherwise diplomatically. And so giving, you know, making it sort of easier for the victims to obtain civil recompense absolves the government's need to be the one focusing on accountability in that context. Let me ask you this, and I realize this is off the cuff, so you're not prepared to answer it. Totally fine. I don't know the answer. Please. I don't know the the law. The the foreign sovereign immunity aspects and the governmental immunity aspects. So presumably, I, I would not be surprised to know, I just haven't looked, that uh, Khashoggi's family and, uh, and survivors have filed a lawsuit. Yep, uh, they have. Okay. Is, is, I assume that uh, MBS and whoever else was being sued is going to argue, among other things, some version of sovereign immunity. Uh, but there are exceptions to this, right? And uh, there are exceptions to, there, so there are exceptions to foreign sovereign immunity. I mean, the, the 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 lawsuit, as I recall, and I will again invoke my general fatigue as justification for not being up on this, um, names a number of individual defendants, and individual defendants don't have foreign sovereign immunity as set forth in the Federal Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. They might have common law official immunity, um, right? Which is a, a a more malleable sort of messier body of law about when foreign officials are entitled to immunity separate from foreign sovereign immunity in U.S. courts. Um, I will just say that on this, I mean, I, the 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 expert of experts is is our friend Ingrid Worth at Vanderbilt, um, who, you know, this is like the, remember Salmon, uh, uh, Sam, Yusuf, Salmontar versus Yusuf in the Supreme oh, yeah. Court? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so there are, I mean, there are exceptions to foreign sovereign immunity, although it's not immediate, clear, immediately clear to me that the Khashoggi plaintiffs are going to be able to overcome those exceptions. There are ways to get around foreign official immunity. Um, one of the things that's interesting, Bobby, is that when you're, with regard to the official, right, the federal government has a bit more of a say because the State Department right. also- makes a suggestion of immunity, which was on the table. And I believe the Trump administration never quite got that out the door, which is a big miss for the Saudis because they sure aren't going to get that from Secretary Blinken. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's so. So this is this is a long build-up way of saying I will be fascinated to see if the Biden administration actively attempts to get in the way of civil remedies for Khashoggi, or if they're willing to sort of split the difference that way and sort of leave the federal courts to do their thing. Yeah, I th- my prediction is they are not going to do it. I don't think Tony Blinken. I mean, I, I hope that's right. I will just say that this is this context. So civil liability for things for which I think there ought to be civil liability is not a context in which the Obama administration had a great track record. Hmm. Um, I did. I was looking at it, something that uh, Michael Eisner and Jack Steele did for Just Security back in December. And they point out the State Department did refuse to recognize head of state immunity for the UAE crown prince, Mohammed bin Zayed. Uh, and uh, yeah, MBZ and MBS are not similarly situated. Okay, well, no, 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 I, I don't mean legally. I mean, I mean politically. True. I, I I predict that the State Department will do the right thing here. Very interesting. Okay, uh, what have you got anything else? I've kind of run out of serious topics. Uh, by the way, so can, can I say that that's a good moment to note? By the way, that I don't. I'm not aware yet. Has there been a nominee for State Department legal advisor? I haven't seen one come over the wires. No. I'll do a quick check, but I've seen nothing about that. I know, I know the acting. I know the acting advisor is is a guy who's been there for a while, who was the principal deputy. 
Well, um, I do know that your friend and mine and one of the, just one of our rock star legal academia colleagues, Ashley Deeks, is a State Department, I mean, a National Security Council legal advisor, White House Council, White House Council, right? yeah. Council for National Security. And that is a fantastic thing. Ashley's amazing and wonderful. And it's really great to know she's in the trenches there. Here, here. Stuff. Um, all right. Uh, anything else happening in the legal world that we should talk about before we start resuming our goofy ways of frivolity? So I, I just want you know, I, I, I had this one of the things that happened while actually the week of the nonsense was the, the House Judiciary Committee had this hearing on the shadow docket at which I, I got to testify. Um, oh, yeah. How was that? That must have been I weird. This, I had this. I had it. It was actually the first time I had showered like in in five days. It was lovely. Um, you, you, did you put that in your testimony? Like, I want you senators to know that I I showered. For no, you. I mean, I, I tried to. I tried to sort of make it look as normal as possible. I did it from our office, uh, from my office, so that it like had power and stable internet and all those things. Although no water. Um, but to, to the we talked about the shadow before. The, the Supreme Court, Bobby, last Friday night issued what to date I think is my favorite crazy shadow docket order. Um, which is in another one of these California COVID cases, um, the Supreme Court enjoined Santa Clara County's uh, uh, indoor religious worship restrictions. Um, and the court's very cryptic order that was accompanied by no opinion of the court, no concurring opinions, nothing, said... No that, was that? No dissent or anything? Uh, uh, there was a, a noted dissent, but no opinion. Um, said that it was clearly erroneous for the Ninth Circuit to not enjoin the restrictions um, because the result was, I think the word was clearly dictated by the court's prior shadow docket ruling in a case called South Bay 2. Mind you, in South Bay 2, there had been there had also been no majority opinion. And so we're at the point where the Supreme Court is chastising lower courts for failing to follow unsigned orders that have no rationale with them. Um Yay. Well, um, any highlights from the hearing? Did you feel like that there's ever going to be any action as a result of all, of all this? So I, I guess I thought I, the Republicans were not nearly as hostile as I was expecting them to be. Um, you know, I think there was um, some agreement that this is actually not the best way to run the railroad, even if we disagree about the causes. Um, my favorite exchange was with um, freshman Congressman Mondaire Jones from New York, um, yeah. who... Um, <laughs> Let's just say the, the exchange is online. It's pretty funny. Um, it starts basically with with Congressman Jones saying, Mr. Vladek, you're on Twitter, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I don't know what to make of that, but that's pretty great. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> True. But, um, his basic point was that like it's not really that helpful to have Supreme Court opinions that are the length of tweets. And I, I, I you know agree with that. Oh, my God. That's really funny. Um, He's awesome, by the way. I I am really excited about about his election. He um he represents, I think it's what um a good chunk of Westchester and Rockland County, so just outside of New York. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice part, nice part of the state. Um, and I think what he's one of the first two openly gay black men elected to Congress in the same cycle. So that's a nice development as well. Mr. Vladek, you're on Twitter. That's uh, <laughs> that is a very true and actually a deep statement. About how you spend your time. <laughs> he's, he's trying to encourage you. Do you think Karen put him up to that? Uh, I do not think so. And I, did, and I did not cite that in my faculty annual report. <laughs> I will know if the, I'll know if that's true soon. Indeed. Um, okay. So why don't we let everyone go who doesn't want to hear just some goofy frivolity. I'm not even sure we have a topic for it yet. If you're trying to decide whether to well, you know it's coming out on Friday. Uh, coming to America. Coming to Coming America. to America. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that we will be back with that as our frivolity. I am confident for once you and I will both use some time to watch something that's the same thing. Listen, I'm traveling on Monday, right? I mean, I have I have a work trip. And the, and one of the great things about work trips is that I actually usually have time to, you know, at least on the airplane to watch something. All right. We will have a, a dedicated coming to America. <laughs> that's a phrase. We'll have a coming to America. Yeah. You have to put the inflection on it correctly. Otherwise, it sounds like it's the first movie. Let me confirm what I know is, I think I know is true. You're not watching WandaVision, are you? Not watching WandaVision. <laughs> okay. Well, if uh, listeners, if you're watching WandaVision and you share my frustration that Steve's not watching WandaVision. But Karen, can- Karen and I are watching this show called Industry. Have you have you heard of this show? I don't think I've even heard of it, no. It's like, it's, it's, the, it's like 
So it's on HBO. It's not quite fair to say it's the British version of Billions. It's a, a, the better way of saying it is it's like Billions if Billions were about like the the temp employees who just joined Axis Firm. Okay, interesting. Um, so it's not Vandalay Industries, is it? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, what about uh, Ted Lasso getting uh, Jason Sudeikis getting the uh, Golden Globe? I thought very, very, very worthy. I gather they're still they're in the midst of filming the second season. Man, I hope they can recapture that magic from the first season. I might have to just watch Ted Lasso again from start to finish to kind of complete the process of getting out of 2020. Uh, are you watching anything else? Uh, what about what about sports ball? You got any sports ball activities to touch on? I mean, Bobby, you know, it's, did, you see, did you see what Francisco Lindor won to his war to his first day showing up uh, at the Mets facilities? I didn't see it. He wore the Coming to America Mets jacket with all the flair on it that Eddie Murphy. That is brilliant. Yeah, that's a pretty strong inside move. I thought he's either he or his publicist really knows what they're doing. He's pretty. Uh-huh. Great. I mean, all I can say is like the Mets are playing games. They don't count yet, but they're playing games. That's that's a, that's a nice development. Um, are you going to do any fantasy baseball? I can't. I can't justify the time. Like fantasy football is once a week. Fantasy baseball, man, that's just so much time. Ah, it's so fun though. We always talk about getting the fa- the faculty league going every every yeah, year on the show. Fun. Listeners say like, "I'll do it. I'll just let's just do it." I think you're right that we're not going to really be able to put our heart and soul into it. So therefore I won't, I won't ask you uh, who your number one, number two, number three picks would be. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. Fernando Tatis Jr. And Fernando Tatis Jr. Although, okay. Cool thing. I did not know until yesterday, Sunday. Um, do you know that there is a major league baseball team that in its starting lineup on opening day is going to have in its infield, Three of the four positions fielded by the sons of former stars. Really? Yes. Okay. So is it is it the Padres? Nope. Who is it? Also, I wouldn't really call Fernando Tatis Senior a star. Just I mean, oh, sorry, to, sorry, to, sorry <laughs> to hate on him a little bit. Fair, Ouch, but fair. Um, so so let me give you a clue. It is the only Major League Baseball team that is not currently scheduled to play any games at its actual home stadium in the month of April. So, well, since the Expos don't exist anymore, I'm going to assume it's the Blue Jays. It is. So the Blue Jays are starting, I believe this is right, um, Vlad Guerrero Jr. at first base, um, Bo Bichette at third base, and Kevin Biggio at shortstop. No way. Craig Biggio's son? Wow. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. No. So I'll give you the Vlad Guerrero and the uh, the Craig Biggio. Going with Dante Bichette, it's like, well, do you know how All much right. Dante Dante Bichette had a better career than Fernando Tatis Senior. Um, it depends on are we are we discounting the home field advantage of Colorado? Field? Yeah, maybe. Although I say that without having checked his splits. Yeah. His um, meanwhile, very, you know, very large do you know, numbers. Do you know what trivia question Fernando Tatis Senior is the answer to? Um, uh, who are, who's a person who's not been in my kitchen? Oh, okay. Fair enough. Um, this is actually one of my favorite baseball trivia questions. Um, so in all of major league history, only one player has ever hit two grand slams in the same game and he hit them in the same inning. That's pretty awesome. And it's Tatis. Um, okay, hold on. There's, there was, there was a college baseball player. I don't remember what college. There's a college baseball player last week who, on in his first two at bats, hit grand slams, like in his first two at bats of his collegiate career. And I'm like, dude, you should just like yeah, don't quit ever now. Play. Yeah, quit now. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll have an OPS of five thousand. I'm pouring over the stats for Dante Pichette, and I'm trying to find a good quick access to whether his road average was like just dramatically yeah. different. Uh, like, regardless of Pichette's stats, I mean the. The the oh, fact that you've got, I mean, the, I just I just think it's cool that the Blue Jays are starting a Bichette, a Biggio, and a Guerrero in their infield. It's like the '90s have come back. Absolutely, it's very cool. That's pretty great. Um, does that mean uh, other '90s things are on their way back, fashion wise? Maybe. All right, really quickly, Bobby. Mets over under win total. So I'm going to say 
90.5. Over or under? Uh, I was going to benchmark it around 89.90, so that makes it really hard that you put it there. Um, the it East was, is I mean, really tough. It there. The East is really tough, which is going to make it challenging. But being the sort of sunny disposition optimist that I am, I'm going with over, baby. I'm going over. with the under. If I'm, wrong, I'll be, I'll go, I'm going with the under because if I'm wrong, I'll be happy. See, you're hedging, which is a great way to protect yourself on the downside, but it gives you no upside. It ensures sadness as surely as it ensures a degree of happiness. So you might as well double sure. down I mean, I, and go over. What, what are the chances that the Mets win 91 or more games and don't make the playoffs? I mean, plus, you know, you're going to have Noah Syndergaard coming back in, uh, like a healthy Noah Syndergaard coming back in June, having not, you know, already thrown like 60 or 70 innings. Like, I like that. Yeah, I, I, I like their chances a lot. So I, I my actual literal prediction or the absolute prediction is 96 wins. Whoa, that's big. So I actually I think 91 or 92 is actually in the in the realm of possibility unless, you know, we have a typical Met season where <laughs> they just never play up to expectations. But <laughs> so I think we've we've officially condemned them to like 72. <laughs> I'm also going to get really confused by the fact that the projected starting day opening lineup has Jonathan VR and Kevin Pillar hitting back to back. Oh man, it's going to be a long year potentially, but I sure hope not. All right. Uh, um, oh, meanwhile, this just, came over the tra- this just came over the transom. Uh, the Pentagon Inspector General issues a scathing critique of Representative Ronnie Jackson's time as top White House doctor per report obtained oh. by CNN. Concluding he made sexual comments about a subordinate, violated policy on taking Ambien and drinking alcohol, and created a hostile environment. Honestly, that's the least of what I thought you were about to start talking about. (laughs) Picturing more Kennedy-esque levels of, you know, you know, come on, it's time to go. Here's Dr. (sighs) Feelgood. Have a shot. All right, um, so we, we can do? promise this, right? Next week, so we hope to have um, the the student winner of the TJF auction was supposed to join us tonight, but uh, Jake had a last minute conflict. Next week, we hope to have Jake Bishop, um, who is the the winner of the Texas uh, Justice Fellowships auction, to join us on the episode. We will give Jake his marching orders, which is that by the time we record, he better have watched coming to America. Oh, that's true, and. Uh... And, and indeed, we, we, we might devote much of next week's episode to coming to America because, you know, maybe there won't be enough other news. Um, maybe maybe there will be national security elements in the, uh, in the plot. Oh, indeed. Uh, certainly foreign relations. Um, meanwhile, um, we should also note that we are fast approaching episode 200. Um, and we have the, 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 the germ of an idea um, to do some kind of live, like live Zoom show where folks can actually be part of our live video audience and can ask us questions on the fly as like a webinar, Bobby. So folks should, we should do um, it. I think we should do it. And I think we should, we, we will between now and next week's episode, come up with a projected date for that so that people can start putting on their calendars. Yeah, let's do that. Um, we'll come up with some prizes perhaps along the way to dole out. I don't know what that we must have some leftover t-shirts from the original. Uh, you, know, you know, I say this all the world. time. You keep promising like swag and prizes. And I'm just like, where is this all coming from? Uh, the Strauss Center. Uh, we, we've been delivering. Uh, there are people out there with the t-shirts. Uh, by the way, I, I finally got hold of Dante Bichette's splits. So are you uh, ready for it? This is what uh, he's been doing the last 10 minutes. His career home average, three, uh, 328. His career home OBP, 365, like really strong. That's pretty remarkable career numbers uh, for over well over 3,000 plate appearances. You might uh, call that a star. On away stats, his batting average career, 269, OBP, 306, a very mortal uh, set of numbers. Not, not terrible. Like those are, those are good, solid major league numbers, but not all-star numbers. So yeah, the Colorado effect, you know, quite real. Almost obviously the, the the number of plate appearances there pretty similar. He had almost twice as many home runs at home. The RBIs uh, a third again as many. Um, the stolen bases, as you would imagine, that's about equal. Really solid player. I don't mean to bash on him too much. I would love to have had him on my team at any given time. Like, what are the odds? 
what are the odds that three kids of, you know, if not stars, certainly like really good major league baseball players all end up starting in the same infield for the same major league team. It's just, yeah, I, no, my mind is boggled by this. Did you say it's been determined this has not happened before? No, no, I have no idea. It, it, I, I, I have no, I have no way of knowing I, that. I bet it's not. Someone tell us if we're wrong. But I was, I, I, I just, I am, I am really excited to watch. I, I hope the Blue Jays are good because when the Blue Jays are good, funny things happen. Are they gonna? Are they gonna have a pseudo home like in Florida or something? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're playing. They're playing their home games at least for their first two home stands at their spring training site in Dunedin. Okay, are they gonna outdraw you know the the Marlins? And, uh, and oh, that's funny. That's it's distinctly possible that they will. That's really the true team of Florida, the Toronto Blue Jays. Well, it's also Florida, so like you know they they don't you know what what is COVID to Florida? <laughs> Not much to the Blue Jays, I guess. All right, um, I guess that's it. I think we've run the string I'm going out. To bed. So, yeah, you you get some sleep, man. Sorry about your glasses situation. I wish y'all could see uh, what I can see, which is Steve. Totally bleary-eyed, blinking into the camera and, and looking like he may sound, which is a guy who has not had his glasses for five days. So I mean, sorry. The, the lack of glasses is like just a metaphor for my general state of discombobulation. Fair enough. That's that's uh, the early part. You, by the way, I told you my theory that a lot of people had this idea like, oh, 2020 is over. 2021 is going to be better. Wait, what the hell's happening? I want my money back. No, no it was never about t- calendar year. It's entirely about the cycle from when, arbitrarily measured from when we, on March 13th last year, in, here in Texas, really began to experience the shutdown. It's, it's based on that. And my friends, that anniversary is coming up. You know, We're two weeks out from the return of Texas spring break. That, I'm telling you, is when the world's going to start seeming a more normal place. You watch for the rise in the percentage of good news versus bad news then. You heard it here first. It's going to happen. I would have felt better about that before the governor of our Fakakta state decided to say no more mask mandates and businesses can be open 100%. Because I think that, that may cut against your prediction, my friend. No, I'm, I'm sticking to it. You're going to see. The power of the vaccines is going to really be sweeping right. through. Uh, he is he is, he is optimistic and he is at Bobby Chesney. I am less optimistic and I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, Stay safe out there, stay vaccinated, and please, for the love of all things, wear a mask. Adios.